right, welcome to Business Casual. It is Friday, September 6th. I'm Tyler Kern, alongside Jeffrey Short this morning. Jeff, thanks for being here, man. Absolutely. Glad to be filling in after a long week at Inner Drone with the rest of our crew, so I'm happy to fill in for Daniel's seat. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you here, Jeff. Today we have a lot to talk about. We're going to have a jam-packed show, including a little bit from Interdrone that's going on in Las Vegas this week. If you don't know, Interdrone is a big trade show there that kind of explores the world of drones. And now most people might think of drones more as toys, but this is how they are more like tools for various industries. And so it's going to be a really exciting look into the drone industry. But before we get to all of that, we need to let you know a few items of business. As you wake up this morning, the Dow is up 372 points. That is 1.41%. The Nasdaq's up 1.75%, 140 points. Price of oil is down to $55.55 a barrel. As I mentioned, we will take that look ahead uh, at Interdrone here in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some news out of WeWork, the co-working space. Jeff, I don't know if you know too much about WeWork. Have you ever kind of been to a co-working space or anything like that? I've actually been to WeWork HQ. So, have you really? Um, yeah, I've been right in there. So um, I don't know how indicative that is of the company in general, but it's definitely an interesting place. So uh There's no surprise that there's no shortage of news coming out of there all the time. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, So a lot of news coming out of WeWork, maybe not the best news. Also, (laughs) we're going to talk a little bit about sports betting from a restaurant. Uh, maybe the potential future of that as a one of the larger kind of sports books is partnered with a restaurant group. So I'm very curious about that as somebody who is a sports fan and has been known to, <laughs> I don't know, drop a 20 on a game for, right. You know, every now and again. So we're going to have some news from that area as well. But first and foremost, Jeff, let's start off here. The NFL kicked off again last night. Uh, it was your Green Bay Packers right. versus the Chicago Bears. And what a lot of people are kind of calling a snoozer. It was 10-3 <laughs> to 3 that one finished. Uh I'm sure you were up watching it as a uh, as an avid Definitely. Green Bay Packers fan. Um, but one of the stories that came out of this game that I, I thought was interesting that I hadn't paid attention to necessarily in the past was that the NFL has moved to mobile-only ticketing, which is interesting to me, right? Like, you can only get in by scanning a ticket through an app on your phone. Um, did you know that this was a thing? So we talked about it, obviously, before, but um, I, you know, I have not been familiar with it at NFL games. Um, I think my familiarity comes in with things like at the airport, you know, checking in, getting that mobile ticket. And, and for me, it's something to get excited about because I'm more likely to be connected with my phone and not having to worry about the paper tickets. Sure. Um, obviously, there's definitely concerns with, uh, are we at a point where... Everyone is expected to have a smart device. What about the people, especially in the NFL, these legacy season ticket holders that are now, you know, pushing in age and they have been using their paper tickets just fine for generations. Sure. Um, So there's definitely concerns. And I think even last night there was apparently some hiccups with, you know, the classic stuff that you would expect. You know, my phone died in line or one person doesn't quite know how to pull it up and that's going to have a chain reaction in the line. So there's definitely going to be some ironing out to do, but I do think this is sort of just where things are going and it's not all that surprising. The mandate that it has to be, it has to be uh, a mobile ticket is maybe pushing things right now, but it's not um, something to worry about, I don't think, going forward. That is a little interesting and it, it wouldn't be shocking if after, you know, I don't know what time people got there yesterday, but let's say people got there at 3 o'clock to tailgate mm-hmm. after being at work up until that right. point. Did they charge their phones, I guess? <laughs> like, uh, th- th- There are questions that I have, like what's what's the backup plan? Uh, I-, I guess can mm-hmm. you go to a ticket office somewhere or go to like the box office and, and be like, hey, 
I do have a ticket. It's under right. this. How can I? How can I actually retrieve it? There has to be a backup system, right. I, would, there, I would assume. Yeah, and um, I did read on CBS Chicago that they are adding in three mobile hotspots, Wi-Fi hotspots. So that's not necessarily going to help you charge your phone. Although I would assume they would include some chargers in there, but. If you do have those last-minute download issues, I'm sure people are, like you said, they've been there since 3 o'clock tailgating, and the one person has all the group's tickets on the phone. They need to then send it to eight different people in their section, and I can completely foresee problems there. So um, it's good that they are sort of addressing that with these hotspot tent areas, but... um, yeah, it's it's a new thing for a lot of people. Right. And, and the upside is obviously security because they've had in the past, you know, counterfeit tickets or, um, you know, tickets that don't actually exist being sold to people because you can't actually tell. So they feel like they're more able to, I guess, regulate this market for tickets and regulate uh, where tickets are and where tickets are sold. I remember there was the Super Bowl ticket controversy uh, in mm-hmm. Dallas a while back when the right, Super Bowl right. was here. Um, and I know it's a big deal over in England. If you want to go to an English Premier League game, they have counterfeit tickets all the time that people get sold because it's hard to kind of regulate that industry. So if you put it all through an app, I get the upside. The downside does seem to be, what if your phone dies? You can't take screenshots of the tickets and send them mm-hmm. to people. Uh, it's all like very, very specific that that's not allowed. Um, so I don't know. There, there's... There are upsides, but th- there do seem to be some significant downsides. And you're right, legacy ticket owners that uh, mm-hmm. have been going to games for years and years and years. I mean, I-, I know it feels like everybody has a smartphone, but does everybody have a smartphone right. at this point? It's the same kind of idea as this: uh, the cashless movement. Atlanta right. is going to a fully cashless stadium. You think, oh, what's the big deal? Everyone has a credit card. But it turns out a large percentage of people don't. So I'm sure yeah. cell phones, smartphones, not even just cell phones, but a smartphone, I'm sure that's an even higher percentage, honestly, than people that don't have a credit card. Yeah. Um, but they're obviously working their way through it, and I'm sure we'll hear some stories trickle out as to how well it went last night and how it goes the rest of the year. Absolutely. It is something that uh, I'm curious to continue following just kind of as the season progresses. One of the other things that's been interesting to me is to follow the progression of sports betting as it's become a more and more, um, let's say, kosher idea, I suppose. And it's it's picked up a lot of... Um, I don't know, steam, is if steam is the right word, but the, the, the idea that let's just legalize this everywhere. Everybody would, not everybody, but a lot of people would like to partake in it. Why is it something that you can only do in certain places? Um, and one of the kind of forerunners of this has been Buffalo Wild Wings, really, really pushing this. And one of the things that they have started to do now is they formed a partnership with MGM, one of the large sports books there in Las Vegas. And the idea would be that it would encourage sports betting in their restaurants. Just on the surface of that, Jeff, Mm -hmm. how do you feel about that? I actually like it, Um, and I'm not someone that is a gambler, really. Sure. Um, But I think from a business standpoint, they're just seeing where things are going. And I think the one caveat that I think is important is that there's not like slot machines or betting kiosks that they're now putting in their restaurant. So I think they're keeping the integrity of their restaurant intact. And it's it's a sports restaurant. You know, it's TVs everywhere. People are going to be gambling on their phones probably anyway it's not like some you know wholesome family restaurant necessarily even though it is family friendly i think that the fact that they are allowing you to gamble allowing you to place wagers but not 
having to rip up their restaurant, put in kiosks and make it a hybrid casino environment is important. So um, you don't even have to really, you don't even have to be in the restaurant at all, actually, to place these wagers right. on their app. You just have to go to collect. So I think for them, they're seeing it in, uh, especially in New Jersey, which was one of the first, if not the first, to uh, legalize um, sports wagering. Um, they're going to go there where it's already brought in billions of dollars to the state. So I think they're just seeing this new market and they're going to take advantage of it. So I think they're getting ahead of the curve a little bit. Yeah, I think it's smart for them to be on the forefront of this. Now, th- what they're actually doing, there's there's no kiosks or actual bets that can be placed at this point. But instead, the first uh, team up on a... Uh, they will. Th- sorry, these two organizations, MGM and Buffalo Wild Wings, are going to team up on a free-to-play game, which is run by MGM through its BetMGM brand, and it's going to reside inside Buffalo Wild Wings' Blazing Rewards app. So you have to have the app, so it's smart on Buffalo mm-hmm. Wild Wings' part. All of a sudden, you get a bunch of people downloading their right. app who want to kind of engage in this game, I suppose. Um, so the game is called Picks and Props, and it'll be available nationwide. Uh, it started yesterday, actually. And fans can play the game anywhere, but have to check into a Buffalo Wild Wings between Thursday and Sunday mm-hmm. to claim prizes. So I think this is a smart idea, and it just kind of introduces the idea that, okay, there are games that you can play. You come into the restaurant, you kind of have these side wagers, right. I suppose, and, and, and that's how it goes. I'll be curious to see what this does for Buffalo Wild Wings. as a place that people already go to watch sports, so does it just naturally become a larger part of people's weekend plans when it comes to watching sports? Yeah, I think it can't hurt. I mean, you look at the competition that they're facing, things like uh, other, I don't know, some other <laughs> sports bars, your average sports bar in town, whatever it is, or some of the big national chains, but this just gives them that differentiator that uh, we haven't seen yet. I'm sure other restaurants will not be far behind, to be honest, Um, whether that's just ones in Vegas or in New Jersey or wherever this is becoming legal, which is um, rapidly becoming pretty much the rest of the country. Right. Um, Yeah, I think it's a good partnership for them. And like I said, I mean, there's things to be said about do we want sports gambling to be taking place just all over the country? Maybe I should be able to go and just eat my basket of chicken wings and enjoy the football game. But um, like I said earlier, I don't think this is going to permeate the actual core environment of the restaurant. So I don't think it's going to necessarily prohibit or turn away people that are not into it. I think it's only going to attract people that are into sports gambling. And um, I don't see a big problem with it. Yeah, I'm with you. I I think that... This is something that will continue to grow. I, I wonder if at certain points we'll see betting windows at stadiums. I, I think it, I don't think that that's outside the realm mm-hmm. of possibility, as long as it can be well enough, well regulated enough. I know the NBA has expressed some interest in it, just because the NBA has always seemed to be on the forefront of these types of ideas right. and these types of things. So I'll be curious to see how this continues to evolve as people. I think their ideas towards it become a little bit softer, and people think, okay, this isn't this gigantic evil right, thing, right. this gigantic evil entity. Um, it's not ruining lives. The lottery exists everywhere, right. and, you know, um, and and that seems to not be the worst thing in the world. So I, I I do think that at some point we'll continue to see this grow. It'll just be in what facet, in what way, how does it, you know, what form does it take on? Are there betting windows at? stadiums or in arenas and can you place bets from a Buffalo Wild Wings or right. from select <laughs> restaurant locations that'll be really interesting to see and develop and it'll be fun to watch who decides they want to be on mm-hmm. the forefront of that if it's the NBA if it's Buffalo Wild Wings because I do think there's a large amount of business that can come from that and I would just also add on to that I think taking gambling 
out of these black markets, you know, the bookie on the corner and things like that. Yeah. And making it more of a regulated mainstream thing will probably help its image, um, which is good for people that are in that industry. And also I look at things like the Raiders moving to Vegas. Sure. As Vegas itself becomes more of a mainstream sports town, they're going to have NHL and uh, NFL. Uh, are they even getting an XFL team? They might, but... Um, well, they're obviously getting NFL, so they'll have their football fix. But um, as they become more intertwined with just the mainstream core four big league sports, yeah, um, I think that's going to help the industry at large. Yeah, I, I think you're right, and I think it's a next. It's kind of one of the next big steps for sports to take, just as they already are an entertainment juggernaut. But as these leagues kind of see, um, maybe there's a little bit of a, a piece of this pie that we could right. be getting in on that we currently aren't. I think that'll be a big thing moving forward for uh, for those. I, I guess for those sports teams, for those sports leagues, uh, and things of that nature. Uh, it certainly is good to have football back, though. Right, absolutely. <laughs> it was nice to have the NFL on the screen last night. Just. Uh, as a, as a means of entertainment, let's say. So, all right, we're going to step aside for a quick break. When we get back, we're going to spend five minutes out at Drone. We're going to get an interview with uh, DJI. It's Romeo Dersher. He's the Director of Public Safety Integration. Our own Daniel Littman sat down with him yesterday just to talk a little bit more about the drone industry, everything that's going on there from data to public safety and much, much more. So we're going to have that coming up next here on Business Casual. Have you ever thought to yourself, podcasts are pretty cool. I should use one to market my company. Good news, you're not alone. But where do you start? MarketSkills Thought Leadership Club makes it easy to dive into the world of B2B podcasting. With in-house podcast production, audio hosting, and more, MarketScale can be your podcast partner that sets you up as a thought leader in your industry, creating the content that powers B2B. For more information, head to marketscale.com and find out what thousands of companies already know to be true, that podcasting is the future of thought leadership in B2B marketing. All right, welcome back to Business Casual. I'm Tyler Kern. He is Jeffrey Short. We are broadcasting live from Dallas, Texas, but we're going to take a quick jaunt across the country over to Las Vegas, where our own Daniel Litwin is at Drone there at the Rio in Las Vegas, exploring everything kind of going on right now in the world of drones. And as we've seen recently in recent years, Jeff, drones have taken a turn away from being thought of as toys, as just things that people should enjoy playing with, to really having a lot of utility and a lot of use when it comes to um, when it comes to industries, so you can see it uh, for surveying in you know architecture, in uh, you know agricultural purposes, for even uh, law enforcement purposes. So uh, drones have begin to being begun to be used in a lot of different ways across a lot of different industries, and it's really exciting just to see uh, how they are growing. And so Daniel Litwin is out there at Interdrone, and you can follow all of MarketScale's coverage from Interdrone uh, on our software and technology. Uh, industry page there on marketscale.com. Click on industries at the top of the page. Scroll down to software and technology. There you'll find all of the interviews we've done there so far. Uh, It's been a really, really exciting time. But he sat down with Romeo Dersher, the director of public safety integration at DJI, pretty much the biggest name when it comes to drones these days, just to talk about where the industry is, where it's going, and uh, a couple of other things like data, uh, analyzing data, and how we're still in the infancy of understanding some uh, some of these aspects of drones. So without further ado, 
let's get to that conversation between Daniel Litwin and Romeo Dersher from yesterday out at Interdrone. Yeah, it's really great to see everyone here sharing their opinions, sharing their thoughts and their technology um, and how it's driving the industry forward. What are your just general thoughts on technology or any booths or people here that are really exciting you? Um, so there's uh, tomorrow is yeah. going to be my day to really dig into the different booths and technologies. Nice. There's several that I do want to spend a little bit more time yeah. with. I think what we're seeing right now is um, technology will continue to evolve. Sure. We're seeing more software solutions come to market. That really ha helps with the data. Mm -hmm. Because in essence, the drone is just one piece of the entire puzzle. Right. That's what we realized a couple of years ago, that there's more than just a drone. And so softwares have really allowed us to do new tasks in ways uh, that we didn't think we could do. Right. And so that I'm looking forward to seeing a little bit more. And then, of course, the standardization. That's another piece yes. that's very, very important. Standardization and, and safety and security. Yeah. So we're seeing more and more of those, of those focused solutions. Mm. And that shows you also that the, the industry is maturing. Right. That's, yeah, it's great. For sure. Well, we're going to get into some of those standardization practices and policies here in a little bit. I want to dive right in and start with what you're an expert at. It's in your official title. You are the Director <laughs> of Public Safety Integration for DJI. So I want to just get some of your thoughts on what are the public safety challenges, opportunities, concerns that most of the leaders in the drone industry are fielding right now? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, uh, it, it's a no-brainer to, to realize that having a live aerial view immediately gives you information to make better and faster decisions, right. and that is tremendously helpful. But there are a lot of things that we have to, uh, as a public safety department, learn. Yeah. First of all, you know, how the whole drone system works, but also how to interpret that data. Yeah. Because it's, it's, it's data from a different vantage point with different sensors. Um, so the, the training aspect is one of the biggest challenges. Mm. And I'll give you a good example. If I'm a firefighter in San Diego and I do some sort of training down there, sure. and then I move to New England, now suddenly my training has no meaning there because there's no standard. Right. So right. we're doing a lot of great work in this field. NIST, the National Institute for, for Standard Technologies, mm. they developed a training course to help standardize training. And that's the type of thing we need to continue to work on so that we have certifications that have meaning for public safety. Interesting. Now, are you seeing most of the um, standardization initiatives come from the private sector, come from businesses, or is it coming top-down, more from the FAA and more from the gubernatorial structures that rule over drone flight? No, not really. On the public safety side, it really comes from the public safety mm. because they train according to standards. Sure. Uh, firefighters, law enforcement yeah. officers, they have to go through training to get certification for certain tasks, and that's exactly what needs to be done. So that if I'm an incident commander and I hire you for, uh, for a department to be my drone pilot, right. I know the type of certification you have that has meaning to me. Right. And that's, it's, it's going to happen in the... Uh, well, you know, as drones continue to prove themselves in this toy versus tool battle, right? I think that's kind of how they were perceived at first. You said even five years ago, Interdrone was aimed at the consumer. Now, five years later, we've got international leaders here talking about the commercial side of drones. 
it's really forcing the world at large to act quickly to meet the growing safety concerns or challenges or just public safety um, issues in general that come with more and more UAVs. Mm -hmm. And this is from a Reuters article that I found. Uh, the global drone market is estimated at a whopping $4.9 billion this year. Is projected to reach $14.3 billion, tripling in size over the next credible. So as this continues to grow, not slowing down anytime soon, how have you seen different nations, municipalities, uh, you know, on large scale and small scale, try to approach solving these public safety standardization concerns? And feel free to give me a few examples. Yeah, I think this goes even beyond public safety. Mm. This goes this goes into the entire industry. Right. And, and you know, we we human beings are fascinating in the way that if we don't understand something, we do need jerking reactions. And yeah. some we've seen many countries go full blown, absolutely no drones allowed. And those are the places that are not benefiting from the growth of this technology. Right. So we have seen countries that, ha that started really reasonable regulatory environments that we're now building upon. Like for example in the United States yeah. where the FAA has taken a really good approach on how can we segregate the hobbyists from the commercial operators right, right. and what can we do to allow them uh, flight over more sensitive subjects like flight over people, flight mm -hmm. at night, uh, beyond visual line of sight. So these pieces are being put in place and the entire world is actually looking at how does the FAA, how does the United States develop a, a UAV frame work that, that can help us. Yeah. And so there are still challenges, but we are in a such better position today than we were just three years ago. Yeah. So it's a step by step, but you're absolutely right. This, this industry will continue to grow. Yeah. And it's, it's really now is the time to figure out how can we integrate drones into everyday life yeah. and how can we do it so that there's no safety concern. So that was Daniel Litwin talking to Romeo Dersher there of DJI out at Drone in Las Vegas this year. I thought that last aspect was interesting. How can you integrate drones into everyday life and how can you kind of make them a part of what's going on in the world, but also keeping in mind public safety and things like that? That's basically my number one concern. I mean, I have no problem with the drone flying over my head so long as I know it's not going to knock my head off. So <laughs> I think that's probably where a lot of people fall in line. And it is unbelievable the industries that it is affecting. I think of all the things we talk about, that is maybe the most diverse. Um, so like Romeo said, it's um, still got a lot of growth potential. And I mean, I think it just will continue to grow. A lot of growth potential and a lot of room to kind of figure some things out, like um, how to interpret data that's provided by drones. I think that's going to be a big thing that we're going to see much, much more of is as these drones are able to collect large amounts of data, um, I think we're still in the infancy of getting past that data paralysis phase where <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden you have all of this and you need to figure out, okay, what do, what do I do with this right. necessarily? And so I think that's going to be a big thing as well that we're going to continue to see more and more of is people are going to come in and say, no, 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 I, I know what to do with this. Mm -hmm. Let me help. And so I think there are going to be more companies formed around the drone industry, maybe that don't even manufacture or make drones or equipment for drones, but makes the, uh, make, you know, writes the technology, writes the programs that are able to interpret what these drones are actually sending back that then makes them more effective and efficient out in the field. Yeah, and I think Romeo brought up a great point in saying that the conference itself, InterDrone, has gone from a consumer show, basically, 
to now more business solutions and B2B. So I, that in, in itself tells you that there are people looking at those kind of issues and saying, how do we address these data uh, lots and all the insight that you're getting from these drones now? It's not just about, oh, uh, we need to sell these drones to people to get them familiar with what they are. It's how do we now drive industries with them? Exactly, exactly. Well, and since this is your B2B morning show, it makes a lot of sense. That's why we're Absolutely. there. Absolutely. <laughs> Again, uh, if you want to follow along with all of our coverage from Interdrone, go to marketscale.com, click on Industries, scroll down to Software and Technology. There you'll be able to find all of our Interdrone coverage. We had a lot of great interviews yesterday. We'll have more great content posted today uh, from Interdrone, the show for, uh, for drones, really, and uh, if you want to keep up with everything going on in that marketplace. All right, Jeff, have you ever been to a co-working space? I have. I've not actually worked in a co-working okay. space, but I've been in there. <laughs> so some big news came out about WeWork. WeWork is kind of one of the big, I suppose, co-working companies. Uh, they have a lot of properties across the United States. They are dramatically slashing their IPO valuation to less than $25 billion because of weak demand. And um, initially, they raised $47 billion valuation in the private market, and now they're slashing that down to $25 billion. Um, and one of the big things... I think of when I think when I hear weak demand, I kind of wonder if this was a major trend that people tried to kind of build a lot of industry around, buy all these properties, assuming that all of a sudden all these millennials were just going to only want to work in these co-working spaces around other creatives and other you know people that want to work in spots like that, mm-hmm. without really considering what the larger marketplace would be and whether or not businesses could actually sustain this kind of model of office space. Yeah, I mean, it, it's surprising to me that it, it has been slashed like this um, because I think on paper it kind of makes sense and it does make sense for where, you know, you're seeing the trends going. People are going to these co-working spaces and people are just in generally working remotely more so now than probably ever before. And you have all these startups that are renting these smaller um, places in general. So that kind of surprised me. I think maybe demand in in stock is weak because they have had some issues with spending and losing money and i think there might be just some concerns with uh, the leadership but um you know we'll see how they bounce back from this i guess and um they were planning on going public, I think, as soon as this month. So we'll see if there's any delays there. Sam Zell, who made nearly $6 billion in mm-hmm. the commercial real estate business, uh, was talking to CNBC. And he said, uh, I had the privilege of investing in this kind of company once before. As a matter of fact, this kind of company began in 1956. And he said, every single company in this space has gone broke. And he points to WeWork's IPO disclosure last month of net losses of more than $900 million for the first months, first six months of 2019. That's a lot of money to lose, Jeff. <laughs> I, I, I mean, obviously, he's um, a much more seasoned person than I am in this space. <laughs> but I would say maybe the silver lining for WeWork is that we are seeing the trends say that people do like this remote kind of work. It's true. Um, so maybe there is some foresight that the WeWork guys are banking on. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, the thing that's interesting to me is that WeWork has been sort of looped in with these recent IPOs like an Uber, Lyft, Snap. Sure, sure. Those are technology companies, not only just primarily, but pretty much almost exclusively. I mean, right. Uber and Lyft have the cars that they need to figure out. But this, to me, is sort of looped in that technology group, but they're really in commercial real estate. Yeah. So that's why, you. I mean, it makes sense that they have to spend a ton of, because their model really is, we're going to buy 
commercial real estate office space, renovate it to make it this, put their WeWork culture in it, right? So they have to buy the space, renovate it, overhaul it almost probably completely. Yeah. yeah. And then they lease it out. So, and then if you don't hit your leases, you're going to be losing money on that. So that makes sense to me as to why there's a lot of losses when you have to spend that much cash to actually open up every new individual place. Whereas Snapchat is such little cost. I mean, sure, software, sure. obviously you're spending and developing constantly and innovating, but there's not that physical location that you need to really invest in. So um, I don't really see why it necessarily gets looped into these tech IPOs that we've seen in the last year or so. I think it's the idea that if you, if and this is probably just lazy thinking, but if you Uber and if you Snapchat, you probably also want to work in a co-working <laughs> space like WeWork. It's probably just the <laughs> assumption. Uh, but WeWork has 528 locations with plans to open 169 new locations and said that half of its memberships are based outside the United States, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um, but I, I do wonder if maybe the the idea of millennials working in a co-working space is there, like young people would mm-hmm. like to work there, but just the jobs aren't there. That If, if I am a freelance photographer... It's it doesn't make financial sense for me to go edit photos at a WeWork spot <laughs> right. out or instead of my house or instead mm-hmm. of the Starbucks down the street. Yeah. Uh, are there? I, I honestly don't know. Are there amenities provided by a WeWork that you couldn't get just at a Starbucks or in your own house? Um, that's a good question. I don't know anything specific to WeWork. I know yeah. at some places, obviously, there's going to be coffee and they're going to have some amenities like that. Obviously, you can turn into a really cool little thing. It's maybe a little bit more focused than going to like a local library or a Starbucks, obviously, where you're going to be surrounded by people talking, chatting, all of that. So there's definitely little perks for sure. Um, but like you said, I mean, is it, is it worth it for you to be editing photos in there? And then the other question is, you know, if there is ever an, ec- an economic downturn, whatever, um, that could severely hamper them more so than a Snapchat would get yeah. affected by that, you know, so... That's something that in a very volatile stock market right now is probably not helping their IPO. I'm going to say you're probably right about that. (laughs) Um, We have about a minute and a half left, and I wanted to squeeze this story in real quick. A new study of over 1,400 teachers uh, surveyed around the world. 98% of them agree that interactive video will be the future of personalized learning, Jeff. And... I love EdTech stories mainly because I love the I love the education sector. I like talking about it. But this seems to me to highlight the need for continued partnership between ProAV and EdTech industries. So as ProAV continues to evolve and become more personalized and become more customizable, let's say, I think that will aid in EdTech moving forward. And I think it's smart of educators to realize that now and to kind of hop on that wave moving forward. For sure. It did not surprise me. Maybe the I think the survey, 98% of four 1,400 um, survey takers agreed. So that maybe that level of conformity surprised me, but it did not surprise me to see that visual learning is kind of the future. And on the AV side of things, almost everyone we've spoken to has said that there's a huge opportunity in education with AV. Absolutely. And as they want to sort of maybe get away from just the advertising side of things where they can, I think a lot of people think of just like the Times Square flashy signs, but they can do a lot more. They absolutely can do a lot more, but we cannot do more, Jeff, because we're out of time for today. <laughs> oh, man. Thanks for joining me, man. This is fun. Of course. Fun. Awesome. Yeah. We'll have to do it again sometime Definitely. soon. But for Jeffrey Short, I'm Tyler Kern. Thank you all so much for joining us for this episode of Business Casual. We'll be back 
next Wednesday. So be sure to.